Keir Starmer has been widely criticised even among his allies for not standing for very much at all and for having very little impact on politics since becoming Labour leader. To turn that around, he's been doing a number of interviews, or to attempt to turn that around, I suppose, including this one with the Financial Times. They lead the story with the headline, Starmer urges Labour to embrace Blair's legacy as he vows to win next election. Obviously, a leader of the opposition vowing to win the next general election shouldn't really be newsworthy. So you can see that the article was slightly thin on, on other news lines. We'll look in detail at what he said. Starmer told the Financial Times in an interview that he was determined to rebuild the party's political culture and repair its battered reputation on the economy. I'm acutely aware that among my first tasks is rebuilding the relationship between the Labour Party and business, he said during a visit to Scotland. He has one strategic vision to win the next election. Winning the next election is not a strategic vision. That's an, that's an outcome. You want to win the next general election. Your strategy is how you do it. Strategy is sort of your long-term means, tactic short-term. Your outcome is, is what you're aiming for. So you can't have as a strategy to win, win the next general election. doesn't really make any sense. Anyway, let's go on. He admitted it has not been easy to talk about building a post-pandemic Britain. He has been unable to talk to people or large audiences other than through the lens of a camera, adding that COVID-19 had closed the, the space for political debate. Again, not much that is new here. And we've heard many times before Keir Starmer saying, the reason I haven't cut through is because people haven't met me yet. Obviously, it's going to be difficult for enough people to meet Keir Starmer for him to win the next general election. I'd also dispute the fact, or dispute the idea, sorry, I don't think it is a fact, that COVID-19 has closed down the space for political debate. I think if you were a, a competent politician, you would have meant that would open up the space for political debate. COVID-19, of course, has shown all of the catastrophic consequences of austerity, of living in an incredibly unequal society and of having very incompetent leaders. So for that to have closed down the space for political debate, that for me is not something that's external to Starmer's project. I'd say that's something that he himself has responsibility for. We will continue referencing the party's recent political fortunes. Starmer says, I recognise we need to step up to the plate and set out the change we want to see for this country. But he said the Batley and Spen by-election had been a pivotal moment when the party's message of unity over division triumphed, albeit only narrowly. Dharma said Labour only ever wins if it glimpses the future. But for the party to convince voters it can transform their lives, it must proudly remind people of what it did the last time it was in office. We have to be proud of that record in government and not be arm's length or distant about it. Aaron, we're going to go through some more of Keir Starmer's answers in both this article from the FT and another one in the Huffington Post. First of all, what I want from you is specifically on this question of Tony Blair. Is Keir Starmer correct that this moment in time calls for him to embrace Tony Blair, the last Labour leader to win three general elections in a row? What do you think my answer is going to be, Michael? I mean, look, you've got in the same, you've got in the same the same story to the Financial Times. He's saying Labour can only win if we glimpse the future. This is like Tony Blair saying, I'm going to reinvigorate the country and then start talking about Harold Wilson in 1964. So immediately, and we see this so often with Keir Starmer, Michael, immediately you realise, okay, there's there's nothing really here. And the thing about I want to win, can you imagine, Michael, if somebody said to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp, beginning of the Premier League season, how do you think you'll do this year? I, well, I think we'll, we'll win the Premier League title. Okay, well, what, what's your strategy to do that? 
well, we're, we're going to win the Premier League title. I mean, again, they would be laughed out of town. Because, well, a coach has to come up with a plan. They have to get the players to buy into it. They have to execute the plan. The plan can't be, we're going to win the Premier League title. So again, you know, we are dealing with somebody, I think pro there's a good argument to say that Keir Starmer is the most vacuous person to lead a mainstream political party in this country in our lifetimes, I think. Probably correct. He's there with Ian Duncan Smith and William Hague. But I think the fact that he's claiming to offer something when he, he's doing the complete opposite, when there's a complete vacuum on policy, on, on values, he loves to talk about values, but never mentions which ones. Uh, I really think this is a blank canvas, but the problem is it's not going to be filled with anything. This is a guy with a pot of brill cream and an 800 pound suit, and apparently that's going to be enough to win a general election. I doubt it. Things change. Could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Lots of people have been pointing out quite reasonably that turning to Tony Blair to try and change Starmer's fortunes when it comes to the public's ideas about him seems a little bit back to front, given that Tony Blair is even less popular than Keir Starmer. We can get up their ratings according to YouGov. Keir Starmer here, not doing terribly well. Popularity, he is liked by 23% of the public and disliked by 40%. Tony Blair, much, much worse. So he is liked by 18% of the public and disliked by 51%. So it does seem like a slightly odd person to try and tie your fate to. Let's go to a few more comments from Keir Starmer. One thing he does stand for is hating the Labour Party. And we have some more quotes to this effect from this interview in the Financial Times. He told them, we have to turn the Labour Party inside out. And that's what we've been doing for the last 18 months. Too many of our members and supporters think winning an internal argument in the Labour Party is changing the world. It isn't. We've got to get real. Elect me and I will turn my party inside out is an interesting message if your strategy is to win a general election. But there we go. We might, if we want to be sympathetic to him, say, OK, fine. You know, it's a bit of an obvious thing to say, but you, you are correct. You should be focusing principally on making arguments to the country, not making arguments within the Labour Party. So let's see what arguments he has been making. This on that front is all the author could get out of Starmer. Starmer said he was driven by a desire to boost security in an uncertain age, whether in education, work, in local communities or in tackling climate change. On a visit to the vast Whitley wind farm near Glasgow, the biggest of its kind in the UK, he claimed the prime minister was a climate delayer rather than a climate change denier, holding back vital investment to cut emissions. As part of his new approach, he said Labour would develop an economic message based on reprioritising government spending rather than making big additional commitments and developing a partnership between business and an active government. Aaron, your take on turning the Labour Party inside out. And then from what I can see, the only policy he is suggesting, suggesting when it comes to facing the country is that he's not going to increase government spending. I, I can't see anything concrete in there other than to say, we are going to move around spending. We're not going to increase it. Yeah. And bear in mind, obviously, the Corbyn, the Corbyn leadership was not just saying, well, we're going to increase taxation, increase public spending. They were also talking about creating new money, a form of quantitative easing for the people. We've been doing that, by the way, for the best part of a decade and using that to pay for vital infrastructure or some people were talking about burying student debt. That wasn't in the manifesto. But, you know, so it wasn't just fiscal policy. It was also monetary policy, really expansive stuff. We do that already. We're just not doing it for working people. Uh, the thing about winning the arguments internally, Michael, my God, 2017 to 2019, what else did Keir Starmer do but focus on an internal argument within the Labour Party about adopting a second referendum? 
Was that looking out to the British public? Of course it wasn't. And look, people thought leaving the EU is a bad idea. We should try and overturn the result. Within a political party, you can you can campaign for things, right? Uh, on the left, I'm not going to say that all of a sudden members shouldn't campaign for mandatory selection or Green New Deal. And yeah, second referendum position, that, that's the point of conference. I get it. But you, you weren't looking out. You were doing the exact thing the source is accusing Corbyn and the left of doing, right? 40% Labour got in 2017 general election. It was the best result they got since 2005. I think it's, it's clear and I think incontrovertible that that will be a better result than they're going to get in the next general election. Again, I hope I'm wrong. If you look at what the response was from the Parliamentary Labour Party, including Keir Starmer, after that result, it wasn't, okay, well, we, wow, we've got a real hearing from the British public here. Obviously, these policies are cutting through. Let's keep on talking to them about them. No, they started talking about the one issue that actually Corbyn had suppressed really well, second referendum, European Union membership, because we're all going to leave, right? So again, the the... The deception here, the hypocrisy, the two-facedness. You, you don't need to be on the left. You don't need to be, you know, really abreast of the news to say, this doesn't add up. This thing that Keir Starmer keeps on talking about, this obsession with internal politics, hold on. Well, he was doing it obsessively for, from 2017 to 2019. And look, what have Labour been talking about for the last 18 months but internal politics? When he says, I've got, I want to turn Labour inside out, you know, I want to turn Labour inside out, we're turning Labour inside out, the only thing they're turning inside out, by the way, is Labour's bank balance, and then say, well, we don't want to focus on internal politics. You just mentioned that. What was turning Labour inside out? What are you referring to? You're clearly referring to the internal machine. This was somebody who was elected on these 10 promises, policy promises, and now they're saying that the exact same political debates would be an embarrassment when they come to conference. The exact same things. You know, we have never had a political figure in the space of 18 months. Politicians sell out all the time. <laughs> they tend to do it in power, Michael. But we've never had somebody in 18 months do this much of a vault fast on, on what they claim to be. And then finally, we want to be the party of business. We want to be the party. What does that mean? Who? If you want to be, a, you know, the party that's favourable for the top 100 companies and the FTSE index in this country, that's very different from the local independent shop down the road. But again, Keir Starmer, one of these sort of zombie, you know, robo-politicians, we've got to be the party of business. What do you mean? He won't say. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He was a, he was a lawyer. He was director of public prosecutions. Now he's a politician. Those are all very valuable skills. He did some really great stuff in around human rights law. He doesn't know anything about business. That doesn't mean that somebody to talk authentically and properly about business policy or economic policy has to have owned a business, but it also doesn't mean that Keir Starmer is saying anything more intelligent than his predecessor was. For instance, I think John McDonnell had a worked out, intelligent 21st century policy for business, for a partnership between the market and the state. Keir Starmer clearly doesn't have that. What he can do with the help and assistance of his of the right-wing parliamentary party and with the media is to actually denigrate the best effort that the Labour Party has had in decades in tackling the major problems confronting this country, regional inequality, low productivity, low wages, all the things he, he says he cares about. Well, there were a bunch of solutions that have been formulated. John McDonnell was talking to people like Yanis Varoufakis and Mar Mariana Mazzucato. The, the, Mariana Mazzucato is a very credible theorist on economic policy. So if you don't agree with those policies and you now want to be credible again on business, what was wrong about the previous ones? Tell us. What don't you like? What don't you agree with? Again, he doesn't know. And it boils down to this, Michael, I'll conclude with this point. I don't think Keir Starmer is a political person. I don't think he has any politics. I think this is about professional ambition. And look, that's, that's a good thing. Be, be ambitious. I'm, I'm happy for you. He, he, he wants to be the prime minister and he's not a Tory. And the only vehicle by which he can achieve that is, is the Labour Party. But I, I don't think Labour values, Labour traditions, it's nonsense. It is nonsense. It's a very ambitious man. He's been the director of public prosecutions. The political analogue of that in his new chosen 
vocation, which is politics, not the law, is to be the prime minister. That is not a vision to run a country when it's confronting the kinds of crises that we're confronting. Economic, political, constitutional, ecological, it's not good enough. Yeah, sure, maybe you could be the Secretary of State, you could be in the cabinet. Fine, there are lots of senior politicians like that. You can't run a country on that. David Cameron tried it, by the way. Look how that worked out. Um, I said there was another story about Keir Starmer's strategy in the Huffington Post by Paul Wall. This time was based more on speaking to people around Keir Starmer as opposed to speaking to him. Getting their party to understand why Johnson is liked by so many voters is a key task for some. Our party thinks that every time he opens his mouth, he's an idiot. He's a liar. But actually, that doesn't work. It backfires because he presents himself as a flawed character. The public quite like that he sometimes falls. He can get stuck on a zip wire, but he's seen as a great sport, one says. Instead, they argue Labour has to show that Johnson's flaws have a direct impact on the public's daily life, from parents having to homeschool their children to employees being forced into repeated isolation by the NHS app to pupils facing exam chaos. Johnson's lack of competence and his empty promises on things like levelling up are seen as his real Achilles heel. I think that advice is quite sensible. You know, I, I think probably calling Boris Johnson a liar, calling him a bigot, these things don't really work. They don't really convert anyone. Probably what the Labour Party should be talking about is that, yeah, he's not up to the job. And that's why we have a pandemic. That's why we have people who have to isolate for 10 days, even though we've been told that getting the virus isn't that bad because Freedom Day happened and we should, you know, we talk so often about how the policies of this government are completely incoherent and they do affect people's day-to-day -day lives. And I think that's the kind of thing that Labour should be hammering home. I say that seems reasonable. What does seem unreasonable about that is you say, we need to teach the Labour Party to speak about Boris Johnson differently. We need to teach the Labour Party because they still don't get it. The idea is that Keir Starmer and his team are trying to teach everyone else how to sound more persuasive and more reasonable. Let's go back to the FT because Starmer there was asked about what he thinks about Boris Johnson and the, the success of Boris Johnson. So in that FT piece, they write, he believes Britain would eventually tire of Johnson. Over the last two or three months, people have started to see the prime minister for who he is, he said. He claimed the public were infuriated by Johnson's initial plan to sidestep COVID isolation rules. One rule for them and another rule for everyone else is really cutting through, Starmer said. <laughs> but above all, he insisted Johnson's style of politics, including Brexit and the culture wars, was running out of road, even if the polls still suggested otherwise. I think the country needs bringing together, Starmer said. The best part of a decade has been defined by division. What I want to do and what the Labour Party seeks to do is find the points of unity. A few things to say that a leader should never say whether or not an issue is cutting through. That's for that's for commentators. It's normally the most boring type of punditry anyway. I'm sure we sometimes um, resort to it on this show. But it's something that as a as a leader of a political party, you shouldn't say, oh, this issue is cutting through. That issue is cutting through. This issue is polling well. That issue is polling well. Your job isn't to be a pundit. Your job is to say what you believe. So completely bizarre. No message discipline there. But also this idea that the problem with Boris Johnson is that he divides people instead of bringing people together. You probably remember that that was a line that Corbyn used between, or especially in, in, in before the, the 2019 general election. It didn't really work for Jeremy Corbyn, but at least it was relevant because at that point, the country genuinely was divided between Remainers and Leavers. Labour wanted to overcome those divides. It didn't have a perfect policy to do so. But the you know it was a coherent thing. So people want to move beyond Remain and Leave. We want to move forward and the divides, et cetera, et cetera. When Keir Starmer says it now, I don't really understand what the divides are. 
bringing people together. I, I don't think society feels that divide. Like the culture war is really something that's happening at the fringes. People want to know, how am I going to rebuild my life after the pandemic? How am I going to have a brighter future? How am I going to afford a house? You know, they, they don't want Keir Starmer to come along and say, oh, guys, I can bring you all together. And this is doing exactly what the advisor said don't do. D don't say, oh, Boris Johnson, he's divisive. Boris Johnson, he's a bad person. We'll be the moral people that bring people together. Starmer is breaking the rules of the advisor, but yet the advisor is saying, we need to teach the Labour Party to be sensible like us. Aaron, I am sensing some projection here. Keir Starmer's advisors are saying, we need to teach the party to do X, Y, Z, when actually the problem is Keir Starmer doing those things. That's entirely right, Michael. That's entirely right. Um, the thing about pundit, I mean, maybe he'd make a great pundit. Maybe Keir Starmer should be a pundit because all he does is just say cliched pedestrian statements. You know, maybe that's what he, that's what he should be doing. He should be on Sky with Sonia Soda doing the paper review. <laughs> I, I sure as hell don't do it anymore. You don't do it. And I know maybe he should be one of the left wingers that goes on Sky to review the papers because the skill set and it's not a skill set. Let's be real. You need to have a bunch of rehearsed attitudes and and sound bites, which you've heard 20 times that day, the common sense of the commentariat or the non-common sense of the commentariat. And that's what he's doing, cutting through, like you say, my God, Michael, he's in really big trouble, right? He's in really, really big trouble. And the thing about bringing people together, you're so right. We've not seen consensus from the public like we have over the last 18 months in my lifetime, unless it's obviously been war, maybe the Falklands, right? But the levels of consensus around the lockdown um, in terms of the dramatic changes we all had to make to, to, to live within the constraints presented by the virus. You know, there wasn't a culture war, actually. Yes, you see lots of it on Twitter. Yes, there's lots of Paul Embry and, you know, all the right-wing people unheard and all that lot. They, they go on about it, but actually, generally speaking, the public has a consensus about what to do. And it's similar on issues of, you know, taking rail into public ownership, taking water into public ownership, dealing with the housing crisis, you know, dealing with low pay, giving care workers a pay rise, giving the NHS staff a pay rise, better infrastructure made in Britain, all super popular, all super, super popular. And he's leaning into some of it, uh, but he's, he's not doing it on, on most of the issues. And there was an argument against Corbyn, and I, I think it's probably true, that people like the policies, but they didn't think that Labour could deliver them, or they didn't think they just didn't like Jeremy Corbyn delivering them. If the Tories offered the exact same policies, many of them would be to their electoral advantage. I, I buy a part of that argument, but you also have to, when you're when you're talking about those kinds of things, you also have to outline a, a vision, and the vision can't be we're bringing people together, you know, or we're going to offer more opportunity. When was the last time, Michael, a politician anywhere in the world went to the public and said, you know what? I want to offer less opportunity. I want your kids to struggle. I want those in old age to barely be able to put food on the table. Nobody said that. It's all oh, the best place in the world to grow up in and go, grow old in. They think they're so smart. Nobody disagrees with this. Nobody disagrees with this. If you say, look, the rules are rigged to the advantage of landlords against people that rent. Uh, HMOs don't benefit renters. They certainly don't benefit homeowners either because it breaks down communities. We all say we love community, but actually we build our housing market in this country around people having to move every bloody year. Yeah, some real common sense socialism, but we're not seeing that. So like you say, maybe, maybe he's better suited to being a pundit, Michael, a really bland pundit next to the conservative home guy and, and Sonia Soda and Isabel Oakeshott. Be great. Thank you. You know, I could see him. I guess I'm reviewing the Sky Papers, TV off. Great. That's what he's good for, I think. That point about what, you know, who would say something different to this is quite good because, you know, Keir Starmer's, these dividing lines might work if the person he was up against said, I want to divide the country. Um, I want to only look inside my particular party and I want to destroy all opportunity in the country. If, if his opponent had said that, then he'd have something distinctive to say. But clearly, 
no one says that. So Keir Starmer is just saying something that everyone will always agree with, which means he's essentially saying nothing. We've got a good question from Nick Stoker with a fiver. Why don't we all just join the Green Party? Aaron, what do you make of that? Well, look, I'm not a member of a political party. So, uh, you know, um, why would I join a, a political party right now? Um, and that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Personally, I voted Labour in the May elections. I, I voted Labour in the last general election. I will at the next one, I think, because the local MPs, good MP, the councillors here are good. I think they would be they would be better on a green agenda than green councillors. Um, that might change one day. Uh, and I think that's what I would always say to people, um, whether you're voting for councillors or for the local MP, there'll be socialist MPs in some people's places where you should absolutely vote for that person. You should absolutely campaign for that person. I'm not a member of the Labour Party. Would I happily campaign for about 15, 20 Labour MPs? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's a bit bigger than that. We should all join the Green Party or all join the Labour Party. You know, the reason why we started Navarra Media, why we continue to build it, even though many of us joined the Labour Party, uh, it's because we recognize that in order to change politics in this country, it's going to require a bunch of things. Yes, it's going to require a different kind of Labour Party, as we've seen. Whether or not it's in government, that's a prerequisite. Clearly, we're not going to change politics if there's a return to Blairism in this country, even if they went office, because it's the Tories' B team. Right, That's the point. Nothing will change substantively. We, we need to clearly transform the media. We need to reinvigorate the labor movement in this country. Uh, and we need a, to build up a, a basic class consciousness amongst working class people. Um, not just about, you know, the system is rigged, but about having the confidence to do something about it, whether it's in the workplace, uh, at the ballot box, in conversations with other people. Uh, and, uh, you know, ordinary working class communities aren't just receptacles of information, but they're transforming their own communities and, and, and they're making change themselves. There are some really impressive places doing this already. You know, I think um, Worthing has seen a surge of Labour councillors recently, some really fantastic people. They're doing precisely that. And I wouldn't want to denigrate their work or what Labour do in Salford or in you know bits of Manchester or in Preston, other parts of the country as well. Some Labour councils doing some great things. Uh, but I think right now, clearly the direction of the party, and this goes back to what Leo Panitch would have said, God, uh, God bless him, rest in peace. He would have said, look, the Labour Party is a parliamentary socialist party. It's not a socialist party. It's not even a social democratic party. It hasn't been since the 1970s. It's a parliamentary social democratic party. But the point is, it's parliamentary first and foremost. So you can change all the councillors. You can change all the members of Senate in Wales. What matters is those 340 people, if you're going to form a majority government, at Westminster. That's what matters. And, and frankly, Labour isn't going to change until a significant number of those people have changed. Now, the Green Party has one MP, has one MP, Michael. It's had one MP since 2010, prior to that, had no MPs. After the 1945 general election, the Communist Party had two MPs, right? So the Communist Party in 1945 was a much more effective political organization than the Green Party today. Would I have been a member of the Communist Party in 1945? I mean, maybe they said good things on anti-colonialism, but probably not. You know, probably still would have been a member of the Labour Party. So my answer to that is, it's not just about joining the political organization, right? It can have 10 people, it can have, you know, 10 million people. We need that much broader understanding of political change. It's about media, culture, labor movement, and yeah, of course, party politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel quite agnostic about the question. I think at this point in time, there are no obvious, you know, if everyone unites in this channel, there'll be, you know, not, not YouTube channel, you know, this, this medium of, of struggle, um, that, that's our best hope right now. I think clearly when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, that made the most sense for everyone who was on the left to do, and most people did. At this point in time, no avenue is really perfect at the moment, right? The Labour Party is clearly, we live in a two-party system. If you want to influence government, the most obvious thing to try and do is to influence the Labour Party and then win a general election. At the same time, Keir Starmer and his people 
at the top are making it very, very difficult for anyone who's organizing at the grassroots to have any say because they'll just come in with their bureaucrats. And if you try and select a socialist candidate, they'll just disqualify them for whatever spurious reason or they'll try to kick you out for whatever spurious reason. I still think it's well worth being a member of the Labour Party and having a go with that. But there's some big barriers there with the Green Party, maybe. Um, there'll be less bureaucrats trying to make sure that you don't have any influence on policy. At the same time, we live in a two-party system, so there's always going to be a, a, a ceiling for, for how successful the Greens can be. But maybe there will be pressure on the Labour Party in the same way that UKIP pressured the Tory party. I feel like both are good, legitimate options. And as you say, Aaron, so is you know organising outside of political parties. I, I feel very, uh, you know, diversity of tactics at this point in time. I think because there are no obvious things that we should all be coalescing behind. Aaron, you want to respond to that? Yeah, there was a great tweet a few years ago, which really sums this up. Organize, what is an organizer? Everybody says they're an organizer. Organize, organize, organizations, right? So you have to be part of an organization, whether it's a renters union, whether it's a political party and you're in a member of that branch, whether you're involved in labor organizing in your workplace, that'd be the first thing. You have to be a member of an organization as a socialist. Secondly, you have to be a member of a community. You really do, you know, because that's when you're doing community organizing, when you're part of an organic community. Uh, and I mean that in terms of, who you're talking to, knowing your neighbours, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm terrible at that. My my partner, you know, she's a Labour councillor. She was elected in May. She's brilliant. She's obviously, a, she's a she's a green socialist. Um, She's very good at that. And I've actually seen that firsthand. Wow, that's a really, really powerful, really powerful. You just know hundreds of people just by literally living somewhere. And so I think those for me are the primary things, Michael. You know, like I said, be a member of an organisation uh, and, and be embedded within your, within your community. And if you look at someone like Wales, you know, what's actually super interesting is that nobody, the, the debate now in Wales, because of course, a big part of the conversation there is devolution, independence, etc. It's not, oh, join Plaid, because Plaid aren't doing that great. Join Plaid to get independence or, you know, join the Labour Party to, to get independence. You've got Yes Cymru. You've got this kind of umbrella organisation around a single issue, which is bringing various people together in the elections for the Senate in May. Three Labour candidates favour independence. You've got Labour uh, city city councils, town councils passing motions in support of independence, not just plied ones. So that I mean, that's a great example of how you can build umbrella organisations, which actually you know really accelerate and foster change. You don't need to join this one organisation which will change everything. You know, uh, I think on climate, on housing, you don't even need to think about party politics to a certain extent. Boris Johnson has caused widespread offence with a quip that the reason Britain is ahead when it comes to climate change is because of the decision of Margaret Thatcher to close the coal mines. The comments were made on a trip to Scotland. They weren't televised. They were said to um, assembled journalists and the BBC have the quote. They say Boris Johnson said, Thanks to Margaret Thatcher, who closed so many coal mines across the country, we had a big early start and we're now moving rapidly away from coal altogether. He is reported to then have laughed and told reporters, I thought that would get you going. So this was a joke for reporters. This has pissed off many, many people because obviously the closure of the coal mines caused you know, untold suffering in this country. 200,000 jobs lost because of that decision to close the mines. There were in 1984, 221,000 people employed in mining in Britain. 10 years later, 90% of those jobs were lost. It's also not just about the numbers because what was super crucial when it came to closing down the mines was that all those jobs were concentrated in very specific areas. So once you closed the mine, you would be 
condemning areas to to decay. Essentially, those jobs were not replaced. That investment did not come because of Tory ideology. The Mirror spoke to some ex-miners who were, they can speak for themselves about Boris Johnson's comments. In South Wales, six-year-old former NUM miner Pete Humphrey said, it is just so insulting and shows no appreciation of the pain those closures caused to hardworking families. Thatcher didn't give a second's thought to climate change. It was about smashing the unions full stop. They also have a comment from 61-year-old Nick, who worked at Coombe Colliery. He said, both my granddads worked underground to tarnish their memory like this is a disgrace. Johnson should be ashamed, but he is shameless. Some of these former mining villages have never recovered. That is no joke. Obviously, incredibly crass, offensive comment from Boris Johnson at the time that all of these people were having their jobs destroyed, were going out on strike and being denigrated in the media, were having their communities ripped apart. Boris Johnson was in the Bullingdon Club trashing restaurants and giving people money to fix the damage because they were so so wealthy and so carefree that they could treat people like that. You could say Thatcher was doing a similar thing when it came to policy, except she wasn't stuffing um, any notes in people's pockets afterwards. The other issue here is not just that it was insensitive and crass, it's also that it was factually untrue. Closing those mines, as Pete Humphreys um, said in the quote we just showed you, had nothing whatsoever to do with climate change. It was an economic policy. In Thatcher's words, it was to get rid of inefficient mines, many people rightly noted it was also to try and destroy the trade unions. I want to show you now Margaret Thatcher speaking in her own words what the closure of the mines was about. Here she is speaking in January 1985, which was the height of the miners' strike. If as a taxpayer you pay £1.3 billion, that is equal to £2 a week for every old age pensioner, £1.3 billion subsidy to the National Coal Board. It's because there are an awful lot of economic pits and you don't need to argue about the definition. They are heavily loss-making pits. The worst 12% cost £275 million a year. You don't need to argue about them. You They're want to shut them closed. down. You have to go through a procedure with the National Union of Mine Workers, and they have to be shut down. You can't go on investing in new investment, the latest, bestest, safest pits, the best working conditions for the miners, without shutting down the old ones. Every independent inquiry said that. Mr. Daly, when he circulated the NUM with a colliery review procedure, made it quite clear that, of course, uneconomic pits would have to close. So there's not much doubt about what they are. We want a very prosperous coal industry, good working conditions for the miners, very good working conditions, and reasonable priced coal that can be sold to electricity here and can be sold overseas. That's what I have in mind, but you can't do it by failing to invest in the new and by clinging to the old. So there was a lot of bullshit spouted there. Obviously, Margaret Thatcher didn't care about decent working conditions for miners, as I said earlier in the segment. 90% of mining jobs were lost over the following 10 years. So she wasn't replacing dangerous mining jobs with better paid and safer mining jobs. No, she was just destroying people's industries and livelihoods. The other thing you'll note there is Contrary to what Boris Johnson was suggesting, Margaret Thatcher didn't do this to move the country away from coal. She wanted to make coal cheaper. This was all about getting rid of inefficiencies, as well as the side benefit for her was destroying organised labour, was getting rid of the inefficiencies of these older mines and basically making 
coal cheaper. She said it would be so cheap we would then export it. That didn't happen. In fact, closing the mines meant that exports fell and imports rocketed. And when I say rocketed, I mean rocketed, right? This is um, the imports and exports of coal from the UK from 1970 to 2019. In 1980, the UK imported 7 million tonnes of coal. By 1990, that had more than doubled to 14 million. And then by 2013, that went to over 50 million tonnes of coal. So in 1980, we imported 7 million tonnes of coal. In 2013, we imported 50 million tonnes of coal. So this was not Britain moving away from coal. This was Britain replacing coal mined in Britain with coal mined elsewhere. As you'll presumably be aware, <laughs> climate change doesn't care where the coal was mined. What they care about is whether or not you burnt it. And we were importing a hell of a lot. You said that the first thing here was about changing the economies around energy production in this country, getting rid of inefficiencies, um, and as a side, a side product would be hammering organised labour. I actually think that was the priority. Um, if you look at what happened to the Heath government in 73, 74, he was effectively defeated by coal miners. And I think it was quite clear to the Thatcher government that before coming into power in 79, they would have to take on organised labour in, in one of several industries, uh, and they would have to defeat it in order to enact the policies they wanted to enact. And that's not speculation. This was called the Ridley Plan, uh, which was formulated in 1977. They said we need to target a nationalised industry. Uh, coal was in the middle in terms of what, what industries they thought would win or could be defeated. It was in the middle. So it didn't have to be coal, but it ended up being coal pretty, pretty quickly. But they said we need to take on a nationalised industry. And it talks, and this is in 1977, Michael, right? This is when Labour is still in power. We'll need to change public order policing. We're going to need to change legislation around um, strikes. We're going to basically need to destroy the ability of, of striking workers to, to, to survive. And uh, they also talked about, which sort of hints at the fact this was always going to be about miners, uh, we need to accumulate stocks of coal so that we can, you know, basically outlast them in any standoff between the government and between striking mine workers. So they they basically made sure that they weren't left short, like in 73, 74. So that's why when we do have the miner strike, the Tories are ready for it and they want it. So the purpose of what Margaret Thatcher did to the mine workers in this country it wasn't about making money. It wasn't about economic efficiencies. It was about destroying organized labor in this country. And a good analog, and Grace Blakely talks about this, a good analog is if you have a labor government come in, a socialist government come in, and they say, we're going to regulate the city of London so hard, it's going to raise so much money in taxes, you know, X, Y, Z. And basically, you could have arguments about, well, is this going to raise, you know, this much money, the benefits, the disadvantages? But that would be a very good move because you're basically crucifying the source of economic and political power for the Conservative Party and for the right, which is finance capital, right? It's the exact same thing in reverse as what happened with the mine workers and Margaret Thatcher in the early to mid-1980s. So that, that, was, that was why it happened. The Ridley plan is there as a matter of public record. This isn't a conspiracy theory. Uh, and so it clearly has nothing to do with climate change and renewable energy. And as, as you can as you can see from any graphs, if you sort of look at look at this online or in a book, for that matter, or The Economist magazine, generally speaking, Britain's consumption of coal to produce electricity. Because of course, you need to use until very recently, you need to use gas or coal in order to produce electricity. Electricity is a clean source of energy, but it's not entirely clean unless unless you're getting it as well from you know geothermal or hydroelectric or wind or solar. Coal was the principal source of electricity in this country all the way through really to, to 2000 and beyond, actually. And the reason why that's collapsed is, is quite recently 
And that's simply because of the falling cost of solar energy, the falling cost of gas, natural gas, which is not clean, but it's cleaner, uh, and the, the falling costs of, of wind energy in particular in this country. And that's why coal has just basically disappeared as a source of electricity production in the United Kingdom. Has nothing to do with Margaret Thatcher. Nothing. Zero. You won't have to look in a book or Google for that graph because I actually have it for you here. This is um, how Britain's energy mix has changed since 1980. So you can see there coal stayed the, the predominant source until, um, well, by far and away the predominant source until 1990. Then gas comes on stream. That's super cheap. And as Aaron says, private providers essentially switch to gas because it's cheaper. And then it's only from 2010 onwards that you sort of see this real move to move out coal. And I think it's from, from that point that it does become to be for climate change reasons until until that period. It was, it was basically all for financial reasons because gas happened to be cheap. Obviously, that did have an effect in terms of reducing our emissions. Gas is a fossil fuel, but it's more efficient than coal, less polluting than coal. The reliance on, on gas, one of the downsides was that it meant that we weren't investing in new renewable energies such as, for example, Germany. Germany has a big coal industry, but at the same time, they had the kind of feed-in tariffs that meant that we got affordable renewable energies that could then be exported. So swings and roundabouts. Marcus Rashford is everything right-wingers hate. He's a talented, working-class black man who speaks with force about politics in this country. He has also embarrassed Boris Johnson more than a few times. That meant it was no surprise at all when a spectator, a magazine Boris Johnson used to edit, prepared a hit job on the footballer. We know this because Rashford tweeted about it at the time. On the 20th of July, Rashford tweeted, just heard the spectator are planning to run a story on me tomorrow about how I have benefited commercially in the last 18 months. To clarify, I don't need to partner with brands. I partner because I want to progress the work I do off the pitch and most of any fee I would receive contributes to that. Last summer, 1.3 million children had access to food support through my relationship with Burberry. Children have a safe place to be after school where they will be fed following the November investment. Vulnerable children have safe places to go this summer holiday. And due to my relationship with Macmillan, 80,000 children now have a book to call their own. Do I have a larger commercial appeal following the U-turns? I'm sure. But I'm also a Manchester United and England international footballer. Why has there always got to be a motive? Why can't we just do the right thing? P.S. I actually enjoy reading bits from The Spectator now and again, but this is a non-starter. Have a good night all. So from that tweet, Fred, it was clear that The Spectator were planning an article about Marcus Rashford where they were saying the reason he forced these U-turns on Boris Johnson is because he wanted to make more money himself with these brand deals. It didn't sound particularly persuasive. Marcus Rashford got a lot of support for this tweet, Fred. It was retweeted 35,000 times. We were then all waiting with bated breath to see what The Spectator would come up with the following day. Marcus Rashford said The Spectator have informed him this will be printed the next day. It never came. So that article vanished. At the time, people were suggesting, oh, is this, is this just that The Spectator got cold feet because the, the backlash on Twitter had been so severe? Had they just succumbed to, to Marcus Rashford's woke mob? They didn't want to they didn't want to take the hostility that would be directed towards them if they went for Marcus Rashford. That was potentially convincing. We actually have a, a better explanation now, and it's a more entertaining explanation because the mystery of the disappearing Rashford story has now been solved. And it turns out the tweet from Rashford was the end result of an elaborate prank played 
on the right-wing zealots. Author of the prank revealed all in a Substack post. Danny Grufferty writes, The events I describe were born of a familiar cause. I speak, of course, of the seemingly never-ending search for ways to keep oneself occupied during lockdown. I noticed one evening that the spectator had launched a new enterprise, WokeyLeaks, heralded as a regular column by an anonymous whistleblower operating deep within the social justice movement, asking for leaks of classified information about woke culture. Graffiti continues, WokeyLeaks was asking for people to send in anonymous examples of woke culture war crimes from workplaces and other settings. So I decided to amuse myself by sending them some fake stories. Surely they wouldn't take this seriously, I mused, as I hammered out frankly ludicrous claims about the great and the good and thought little more of it. A few weeks later, I was somewhat surprised to receive a reply. The WokeyLeaks writer, Edward Snowflake, they, them pronouns, wanted to know more about the gossip I had. Out of all the bizarre stories I'd claimed to have, the one that interested them related to a certain Marcus Rashford and the talent agency he worked with at the time, Rock Nation. She goes on to say, I'd claimed Marcus Rashford's interest in campaigning to keep free school meals was inspired by his mother being a member of the Communist Party who wanted to nationalise all food. But I'd also said in the same email that the food poverty campaign was nothing to do with Rashford at all, but was fought up by a bunch of wealthy white liberals at Rock Nation who had opened his, his eyes to the reality of food poverty. So she sent an email to the spectator saying this is all because Marcus Rashford's mum is a communist who wants to nationalise food. But also at the same time, Marcus Rashford doesn't actually have any interest in food. This was a campaign which was drawn up by the the wealthy white liberals at, at Rock Nation and, and Rashford just went along with it. Sounds kind of ridiculous. They bought it. And at this point, the prankster includes an email from the writer of the WokeyLeaks section. They write, I'm so sorry this is taking so long to make happen. We've been waiting for Fraser, who's Fraser Nelson, who's spectator editor, to read and approve. He finally has today and suddenly he's extremely excited. I don't think he had any idea. Now he thinks they might make it a cover and says it might be the best story spectator have or will run all year. Great news, though frustrating it's taken him so long. It also means that we have to go back and double check everything with the lawyers we're penciling next week. Spectator doesn't really do investigative stuff, so this is all a bit new to them. So if I have any further questions from Fraser, am I okay to ping them over this week? Really excited. I think it will be a real splash. You should be proud. So this writer at The Spectator, who admits we've never done any investigative stuff, the only time they're actually investing in investigative work is to try and, you know, call out a footballer who had a go at the prime minister not to uncover any kind of controversy in the, the the you know the dark echelons of power but no it's to try and smear a celebrity essentially better than this reply from the journalist though is the quotes from a first draft of the spectator article this is as they plan to publish it and it was sent to the prankster obviously to get her to read over it because she was the source of the stories so in the first draft of this article the spectator had written mercifully Rock Nation apparently scratched an idea to have Prince Harry lend his support to Rashford by living on free school meals himself for a week. Bobby Sands, eat your heart out. Rock Nation, they say, regularly dictates the issues that their clients campaign on. Apparently, Andy Murray asked the company to help him with a campaign on alternative voting systems, but it was rejected as too dry. Man City midfielder Kevin De Bruyne wanted to do a pro-EU protest, but that was too divisive. Another client was allegedly mocked in the office for proposing an anti-littering campaign. 
and a rising soccer star was keen to do something against the badger cull, but apparently that wasn't controversial enough. So this was the story that the Spectator were planning to publish. Obviously, you know, swallowing whole all of these ridiculous tales that were told to them essentially by a prankster. They were so desperate um, to smear any celebrity that dared intervene in politics that they were, you know, willing to swallow any old lie because they have no idea how investigative journalism works. Anyway, as described in the blog, the Spectator sat on the story for months, planning to publish it after England came crashing out of the Euros. That was another email from him. And um, it was following the blowback from Rashford's tweet that for the first time, the prankster was invited to a conference call with Fraser Nelson, the magazine's editor, and Freddie Gray, who is his deputy of that meeting, she writes. I could go into more detail on the call itself, how the emails I had sent were described as proof, how they were doing somewhat of a hatchet job rewriting the article during the call. But I think the following exchange speaks for itself. Fraser Nelson. But look, if you actually were a wind up, I think we would have worked it out by now. And Freddie Gray, who's the deputy, if you are, hats off to you. They still haven't got it, though. So even though there's been all of this pushback, clearly, They've told Marcus Rashford's lawyers, we're going to write this story. Marcus Rashford's lawyers have said none of this is true. They still haven't worked out that they've been fed a tall tale by this particular prankster because then they try and get her in for more meetings. She writes that after that Skype call with the editor and deputy editor, they continued to get in touch asking me to meet with them in trying to convince me they compared our situation to WikiLeaks. I invested in a burner phone, started calling Snowflake H., the last I heard, there were discussions relating to how they could go about presenting Rock Nation with a text from an episode of BBC comedy series, The Real McCoy, and asking them for comment. Aaron. Some people on Twitter were saying, oh, you know, actually, maybe this prankster has just caused Marcus Rashford unnecessary stress because she's fed a lie about Marcus Rashford and then the spectator have contacted his lawyers about it. He obviously felt he had to preempt it with this tweet thread to say, the spectator are going to publish this hit job on me. None of it's true. At the same time, it is pretty funny and it does make the spectator look pretty stupid, doesn't it? I mean, they are pretty stupid, Michael. I mean, the whole thing about Kevin De Bruyne, pro-EU, you know, protest. I mean, you, you read that and it's just kind of, I mean, it's clearly made up. Um, and the, the, the thing that you, you said, it's so on the nose, Michael. With a spectator, we we advertise ourselves as this 200-year-old, you know, one of the most respectable, most influential publications, periodicals on the centre-right in the United Kingdom. We don't do any original reporting. Like, that just sums them up. And um, if this landed on our desk, obviously, immediately after, after we'd stopped laughing, we would have emailed the person back and said, please waste somebody else's time. Um, However, if you get a story like this, yeah, of course, the first thing you do is you you, you check the legals and, and you need it to be very robust because if you if you if you say things which aren't true about really wealthy people, Michael, you're screwed, right? You're you're in really big trouble. Um, there's a part of me that almost wishes they'd run the piece and that you know Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Marcus Rashford and Andy Murray just sued them out of existence. I mean, that would have been quite funny. I don't agree with libel law in this country, but that would have been a very funny thing if it had you know wiped the spectator from the face of the earth. Uh, that that would that would have been a very positive thing for our media culture in this country. So yes, it tells us how daft right wingers can be. It also tells us something quite troubling about you know the state of media in this country that you have something like Fraser Nelson or, or people like the Spectator just being quite open about well we don't really know how to do contentious reporting which will need a lawyer. You know Navarro does it all the time by the way, and we are tiny compared to the Spectator. They have a huge, huge, huge print circulation. 
Like, I mean, maybe it's changed recently. It was like 70,000, 80,000 copies a week. And yeah, some of that is they're giving it away to pad the stats, to sell advertisers, you know, so basically they can get more advertisers in, but they, they sell lots of copies and they get lots of traffic. And this should tell you it's crap, right? It's not very good. And actually speaking of the spectator, um, you know, we, we, we talked about Oliver Cam last week. You know, it's a part, this kind of story is actually very similar to what we saw with the Jewish Chronicle, where, you know, the, the Jewish Chronicle ran a, this, a piece on Navarra Media. They ran an article on an article we ran. And like you said, Michael, at the time, you thought, oh, God, there's going to be a correction. Have we not gone to somebody? Have we not legaled this properly? No, they wrote an article on the basis of two unhinged people's tweets, right? That is the state of the right-wing media in this country. The Jewish Chronicle is a right-wing publication. I mean, it's a community publication, but it's quite clear from the people involved in it that it's a right-wing publication. These people have no commitment to truth. These people have no commitment to professional integrity. And uh, yet, and yet, they will be on your TV screens and on the radio and at the very highest levels of, of public discourse in this country. You know, for Christ's sake, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, was formerly the editor of The Spectator. That tells you something quite significant. Andrew Neil, the anchor man of the BBC, is a chairman of The Spectator. And this is how they were almost caught out. They're not serious journalists. They're not interested in the truth. And they're not interested in informing people. You can definitely bet the editorial standards weren't any better under Boris Johnson, someone who has no qualms whatsoever about publishing nonsense rumour without checking it. Um, I, I, I presume the spectators pay their lawyers quite a lot because they must have to stop them. You know, they must have to intervene to stop them getting sued a lot because it doesn't seem like the journalists are particularly capable of doing any due diligence of their own accord. We're going to leave it there. Aaron Bastani, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, speaking to you on this Friday evening. It's been my pleasure, Michael. My pleasure. And thank you for watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.